You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, my name is Lise Grande and I'm the head of the United States Institute of Peace, which was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. We're very pleased to welcome everyone to this important conversation on how to hold the perpetrators of aggression, violence, and human rights accountable in an age of impunity where civilians are being increasingly targeted in conflict, rights are less respected, and officials and leaders in all parts of the world all too often act as if there are few, if any, constraints on their actions. It's an honor to welcome David Miliband, the president of the International Rescue Committee, and one of our generation's most thoughtful humanitarian and public leaders to discuss the critical challenge this critical challenge with Ambassador David Sheffer, who is a distinguished expert here at USIP, a professor of practice at the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University, and who served as the first United States ambassador at large for war crimes. One of the most remarkable hallmarks of the past 80 years since the end of World War II has been the global commitment to holding countries and our leaders accountable for the actions they take in our names. This commitment has been shaped and is daily renewed through the application of the rules and principles in the United Nations Charter, through hundreds of international, regional, and national institutions, and through domestic and international legal frameworks that are used by people across the globe to counter the forces of impunity. Yet, in spite of this extraordinary architecture, impunity grows ever more pernicious, threatening to undermine civilized relations between countries and within nations. David Miliband is in the forefront of global leaders and determined citizens who are crying foul and insisting that all of us do more to uphold the norms and protect the institutions that promote and ensure accountability. As the head of the International Rescue Committee, David is also one of the world's leading emergency forecasters. Each year, IRC produces an emergency watch list of the 20 countries where the greatest deteriorations and worst humanitarian emergencies are expected. At the top of this year's list is Somalia, followed by Ethiopia, Afghanistan, Democratic Republic of Congo and Yemen. The list includes Syria, South Sudan, Burkina Faso, Haiti, and Ukraine. It is no coincidence that in a number of these countries, impunity is widespread and deeply embedded. USIP is honored to welcome you, David. Thank you. David served as the Foreign Secretary for the United Kingdom from 27 to 2013 and was a member of the UK Parliament from 21 to 2013. Since 2013, David has been the president of the IRC where he oversees the agency's humanitarian relief operations in more than 40 war-affected countries and its refugee resettlement 
and assistance programs in 28 U.S. cities. President Clinton once described David as one of the ablest, most creative public servants of our time. We're very fortunate to have Ambassador David Sheffer join us today for the discussion. David is one of the U.S.'s leading experts on international law and international criminal justice. He served as the U.N. Secretary General's special expert on U.N. assistance to the Khmer Rouge trials. He led the U.S. delegation to the U.N. talks that established the International Criminal Court, and he negotiated the creation of five war crime tribunals including the International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, and the ICC. Ambassador, I'm pleased to hand the floor to you. Thank you very much, uh, President Grande. And I'm going to go on a first-name basis now, if I may. Um, and I want to start by simply recognizing from my vantage point International Women's Day because I had this, the distinct privilege and honor for eight years in the 1990s of working every day with, frankly, the most powerful woman in the world, who at that time was Dr. Madeleine Albright, first as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and then as the United States Secretary of State. So when that happens, you, you learn a lot of lessons. But one of the things that I recognized in her daily work was a constant effort to promote and elevate highly qualified women into the positions that they should by merit have. And she focused her work tirelessly on that. And I, certainly in my bailiwick of war crimes work, the first US judge on the Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal was Judge Gabriel McDonald, Texas federal court. She pulled her out of Houston, sent her to The Hague. She strongly supported Louise Arbor as prosecutor of, um, of, uh, of the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals. Then she strongly supported uh, Carla Del Ponte of Switzerland for that position. So, you know, repeatedly uh, in so many areas, she sort of demonstrated that. And I want to tell you just one small, very brief anecdote. We were in Rwanda and then we were flying into Burundi. When we landed in Burundi, we were immediately invited to a women's caucus among civil society um, in an auditorium. And as we walked into the auditorium, there were, it was just hundreds of women. I was the only man there, period. And so I'll never forget what Madeline said to me as we were walking down towards the stage. You know, she said, David, you notice that there are no men here. And we're going to be talking about the role of women in negotiating a peace agreement among warring factions in Burundi, because their role is essential in this discussion. And yet no men of Burundi are in this audience. That needs to be corrected for the future. Um, and, and I've always kept that in mind as to the critical role of women in peace negotiations. Uh, and I want to start, if I may, David, with this question. <clears throat> and we'll get to broader issues. But on this specific one, the International Rescue Committee, um, I hope all of you picked it up. This is a fantastic little document of four pages. At the, at the backside of it is IRC's recommendations. 
and I find them all very compelling. One of them says, empower women in peace and security efforts. The role of women should be centered at every stage of conflict. This includes providing greater funding to women-led organizations, empowering women in peace processes, and supporting programs to address the disproportionate impact conflict has on women. From your experience, David, and you travel a lot into these regions, can you give us some sense of what you have witnessed the role of women has been in trying to deal with conflict issues and achieving peace within those societies so that these humanitarian priorities can in fact be addressed? Well, the, the danger is I spend the next 52 minutes answering <laughs> that um, question. Let me just back up a little bit. It's a true honor to be here with Lise Grandi. Uh, I first got to know you, I think, when you were working in Iraq. Uh, and then we had a memorable trip to Yemen uh, together, a two or three day visit to get Yemen. And your commitment, not to, just to public service as a concept, but to public service as an entrepreneurial, risk-taking drive to further the public good is, I think, really inspirational. And so it's very, very nice to be here with you. Um, in your new palazzo here, uh, the, uh, uh, and in your new fiefdom, because um, the, the experience that you're bringing from states and people experiencing intense conflict, sometimes localized conflict and sometimes internationalized conflict, goes right to the heart of this conversation we're going to have today. And, and we must try and do, do justice to that experience. I'm also truly honored, David, that we're doing this event together. I mean, you, you, you've forgotten more than I know about accountability, and um, so this is truly a discussion. On the uh, question that you asked, just so, so that we're all clear, um, this emergency watch list, which the IRC publishes uh, every year, was originally, 10 years ago maybe, five years ago even, an internal management document. We, we took some data sources, we looked at where was trouble happening, where do we need to preposition people or goods or medicines, etc. Um, and in that sense, it was a relatively traditional, certainly internal document. It's become something much more important for us, and that's why I was really pleased for when USIP were willing to have a, a, a conversation, a discussion, both uh, online and in person uh, about it, because it's become, uh, in our minds, an agenda for us, but also an agenda for the wider world, because none of the problems that we're dealing with can be resolved by us. Uh, alone. And just so for a bit of ground clearing, uh, we, we're committed to being a data-driven organization. 67, I think, different bits of data go into the construction of the watch list that produces the 20 countries at greatest risk of humanitarian disaster in the next year. So it's forward-looking, although obviously the data is backward-looking. Um, 15 of the 20 countries have been there for more than five years, which is an interesting thing that we should come back to because protracted conflict has... Um, accentuates the injuries of, uh, that, that, that people suffer, especially women, uh, and we'll come back um, uh, to that. But the, there's one other thing that I'm very proud of, which is that uh, the number of documents I've read from NGOs which say, here are all the problems, and the answer is, give us more money. Um, we, we've deliberately just avoided that. Uh, what we think we have a responsibility to do is not just to do pe penetrating analysis, but to try to think in a systematic way, uh, and it, by the way, this is not me avoiding answering your question, it's a slightly uh, circuitous route to, to getting to it. Um, 
we're, we're absolutely committed to the idea that our micro-social or micro-economic solutions can only work when the macro context is also taken care of and we feel we have a responsibility to bear witness to the experiences of our clients and our staff in informing that macro context. So in respect of the 20 um, uh, countries, we brigade our answers into three, our, our solution set into three buckets and I think this is important for structuring this um, discussion. Um, the first bucket is about breaking the cycle of crisis and that can be micro or macro. So it can be about malnutrition and it can be about uh, peacekeeping. The second is protecting civilians in conflict, which is very directly about the impunity agenda. And the third is about how to manage better the global risks that confront us around the world. We had a very interesting discussion at the World Bank yesterday. And our perspective is that extreme poverty is rising in fragile and conflict states but or and the global risks that face everyone from economic insecurity to climate insecurity uh, to health insecurity and pandemics, it exposes the vulnerability of the poorest many times greater than it exposes the vulnerability of us here. And that's the context in which I, I think it's right to address your question, which our experience is, very simply, from our clients and from our staff, is that Women and girls experience conflict the, with multiple inequalities that are not faced by men and boys. You've seen this in Yemen and, uh, in, uh, and in uh, uh, Iraq. And tragically, or, but in some ways predictably, when the interventions that are supposed to help resolve the problems don't include women, they often exacerbate the problem. And the most extreme example of that is about male-only peacekeeping missions, which have levels of sexual abuse and other abuse many times greater than peacekeeping missions that don't have, that, that, that are, are better um, balanced. And so that's, a, I think, important also for us as an organization. We have our own gender action plan, which is about partly about our programs, but it's also about how we work internally. And mm. it's very clear about what kind of balance of teams that we, uh, that we need, because we don't want to exacerbate the problems. We want to safeguard our clients and uh, tackle the problems. I think the next level is that there is very powerful experience. I, I don't want to overly draw on this, but I, as a youngster in the 80s and 90s, I was very struck as a, someone growing up in the UK the role of the women's movement in bringing peace to Northern Ireland and the conflict in, on the island of Ireland was very significant. And there's a, quite an interesting um, uh, set of histories around that. So I think that, that, that this, the, the peacemaking that excludes women is never going to be a durable, a durable peace. Um, we'll probably talk about the Atlas of Impunity that was published by the Eurasia Group and the Chicago Council. But I think it's very important that across the five sites of impunity that are in the Atlas of Impunity, conflict, human rights, governance, environment, and uh, economic exploitation, at least four of them, and you could argue all five of them, have a strong gender component across each of them. And the data that underpins that atlas includes data that is specifically about the experience of women in conflict, for example, the Georgetown Index. So I hope that gives you some flavor. I apologize for the long-winded answer, and I, I promise I won't give such long answers to other questions. No, 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 and I'm so glad that you brought up the Atlas of Impunity, because that was a segue to my next question, which actually you have just 
slightly answered, and I just wonder if you would want to go into any more depth on how um, the, the dilemma and the plight of women and girls truly does define itself within each of those five dimensions in the atlas of impunity. Is there anything else you'd like to, to, to say about that in terms of the depth of analysis in those five dimensions? Well, there, there is one thing, and, and it would be good, I mean, I, I feel, uh, while I, um, I mean, I just, I, I think it'd be good to hear your perspective for obvious reasons on this. Um, there's one thing I want to add, though. You hear a lot about autocracy versus democracy as the defining issue that um, the world faces. The argument of the Atlas of Impunity is that a better framing is about accountability versus impunity. Mm -hmm. Impunity versus accountability, because democracy is one form of accountability. And there is a broader struggle. And the question that you raise goes right to the heart of that. There are democratic countries that have high levels of abuse against women. Mm -hmm and violence against women. I mean, in, in the index, it's interesting, South Korea gets pulled down in part because of the position of women in South Korea. So I think that is the additional dimension that there's no room for um, uh, sort of complacency, if you like, in any society because what the Atlas of Impunity brings out is that the um, inequalities faced by women run across the spectrum of democratic and autocratic societies and across the spectrum of rich and poor societies. Lise, I'd like to ask you a question along uh, that vein. You've had such experience with Yemen, and the role of women in Yemen is a very important one. I was at a function last week where Americans who had lived in Yemen in the early 1990s expressed such joy in how gracious and generous the women of Yemen were for them as they lived in Yemen and did their, he was a geologist and you know, did work there. And yet they now look at Yemen as obviously one, if not the most humanitarianly aggrieved, uh, uh, the greatest humanitarian crisis in the world is what the UN said, at least prior to Ukraine, Ukraine might you know, be equal with Ukraine now in terms of uh, dimension. Um, is there anything you'd like to contribute about what, what you saw in Yemen in terms of, of how women contributed or, or failed to have the opportunity to contribute? to resolving that conflict and their humanitarian state of, of, uh, of condition. David, I think one of the things that if you worked in Yemen, you couldn't escape was the deep sense of disappointment and betrayal that many women felt about the international community. So against all the worst kinds of odds in unimaginable conditions, you had women leaders who were heroically trying to defend their families and their communities and assert their wives. And they looked to the international community to take up that flag with them and to support them and to stand in solidarity with them. And the deep sense that we weren't doing enough, that we didn't care enough, mm. that our responses were rude and perfunctory and insufficient uh, was felt across the board. And it didn't matter whether you were talking with an organized women's movement or you were talking with women leaders in a specific community. It, was a, it, it raised a deeply uncomfortable question for those of us who were on the ground. Why was our response so insufficient? Why did women feel 
that rather than us as a support for them, rather than us as a champion for them, we were precisely the opposite. Very uncomfortable. And that's a good segue to my next question, which is, I, I'm going to stick with these recommendations because they're so compelling, I'm sorry, which is your third recommendation on to break the cycle of crisis, which is funding the front lines with a people-first MDB strategy, multilateral development bank strategy. And as it says here, MDBs are accustomed to a government-first strategy. They should shift towards a people-first strategy and formalize strategies for funding non-governmental organizations to better support areas without viable options for government programs. That struck me because, frankly, there's a little bit of deja vu there. Back in 1975, um, I spent a summer working for the president of the Inter-American Foundation here in Washington, uh, which is part of the State Department. And um, the whole purpose of that foundation was to funnel U.S. assistance to non-governmental groups in Latin America and to circumvent which uh, what at that time were quite repressive governments. And uh, the, you know, the lack of trust as to how US money would actually be applied by those governments was fairly strong. So the whole purpose was to get to those small NGOs. And from what I could see, it worked on a very micro scale, but it worked. And I wonder if you'd like so to expand look, on that. I think this is such an important point. So let me answer it in two parts. First of all, the, the diagnosis and then the prescription, because I, I think it's important to, to, to bring out this point. If we'd been having this conversation 20 years ago, 80% of the world's extreme poor would have been living in stable, poor countries. And yeah, 2000, so 23 years ago when the Millennium Development Goals were, were launched. What happened over the succeeding 15 years, not primarily because of overseas development aid, primarily because of opening of markets, changes in China, changes in India, is that the story of the reduction of poverty in stable states is a remarkable success story. Yes. I mean, essentially, it's a, a 45 degree line down. Um, in the number of people, and I, I may have got this wrong, Sam, I'm looking at you, you can either nod your head or, sh or shake your head, that something like, it's gone from 800 million people in um, stable but poor states, extreme poor, which was previously $1.50 a day, is now less than $2.15 a day, and it's gone down to 150 million. And that may be a slightly pre-COVID figure, but you can see the, the change, more or less, there's an order of magnitude, that's basically right. But the number of people who are extreme poor in fragile and conflict states has gone from 20% of the total to 50% of the total. So it's now 150 to 200 million who are extreme poor in fragile and conflict states. And by 2030, the expectation of the World Bank is that the number of extreme poor in stable states is going to carry on going down, but the number in, uh, extre uh, in extreme poverty in unstable states is going to go up. Mm -hmm. So extreme poverty is going to become a conflict climate sort of disaster phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely critical to the role of the multilateral development banks in how they handle this, because these fragile states will become failed or failing states pretty quickly. And by the way, just as a sort of um, parenthetical bit of geopolitics, Russia, China, other countries are not ignoring these states. Right. They're not writing them off as too difficult to handle. In fact, the Wagner Group send platoons to go and support some of these 
governments and the Chinese have representation and trading links. These countries are not irrelevant for geopolitics and certainly not irrelevant if you look at the vote in the UN General Assembly about who supported the um, condemnation of the Russian invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. So, diagnostic point, there's a, a new geography of global extreme poverty focused on fragile and conflict states. Point two, prescription, you can't just rely on the governments to accept or not accept loans and then distribute them. Mm. You have to find sometimes a way around the governments or injecting some competition into the governments or some incentivization into the governments or fear into the governments that there are alternatives. Now, to be fair to the World Bank, and I think this is really important, in Yemen, in Afghanistan, um, in, I think, South Sudan as well, they've developed the bones of a quote-unquote people-first rather than government-first strategy. Just the Afghan example is an interesting one. The Afghan Reconstruction Trust Fund doesn't go into budget support for the health ministry and the education ministry and the water supply ministry. It goes into payments of salaries to civil servants who are teachers or nurses or water engineers. And it's been very important since August 2021 that that has continued. Because frankly, the people who are employed in the public sector are a lifeline, not just for their own family, but for five or 10 other families who uh, have been hit by the end of the war economy and the collapse of the economy. So there are some seeds of what a people first strategy means, but it's still the exception, not the rule. Mm. And I've just come back from Cameroon, um, the, the fragile and conflict state fund that the uh, World Bank set up in 2018 was intended to give them a very large sum of money. It's not been able to be spent, and so it comes back into the central coffers. And so our point is driven not by, is driven by the circumstances on the ground, that in these fragile and conflict states, you can't just rely on the traditional means of doing business if you want to achieve the anti-poverty goals that, you, that, that you've got. And this slips quite smartly into another recommendation, which is reestablish people's right to aid. As parties to conflicts weaponize and politicize access to aid, the establishment of an independent organization, such as an organization for the promotion of humanitarian access, could document the denial of aid and speak truth to power. That folds pretty nicely as an adjunct to what you were just I saying. I think this is really, this is, in, this is, I would say this, but I think this is important as well. Um, What's happening in the conflict states, remember there are 54 civil conflicts, you've done some work on this, 54 civil conflicts going on around the world at the moment, separate from Ukraine. Eight of them with more than 1,000 battlefield deaths, so counting as quote-unquote severe. In these places, the impunity is not just, I mean, we should have probably said this at the beginning, impunity is a legal concept. In layman's terms, layperson's terms, it means uh, the exercise of power without accountability. And in the worst cases, it's a crime without punishment. And so the impunity is demonstrated by two of my colleagues driving an ambulance in northwest Syria, having a missile uh, launched on them and killing both of them. That is an act of impunity, which happened in 2017. But the denial of aid is also an act of impunity because there is a legal right to receive aid. Mm -hmm. so governments and non-state actors who deny aid convoys to flow are, at, are committing a, an illegal act and they're guilty therefore of impunity. And what we know is that increasing numbers of 
people in humanitarian need around the world, there are 340 million of them in total, increasing numbers in that total are being denied aid by governments or by non-state actors. Now, why do we recommend an independent sort of access commissioner, humanitarian access czar? I'm going to put it very, very bluntly to you. In too many places, NGOs like us and officials of the United Nations are worried that if they speak out, they're not going to be allowed to stay in the country. That is the reality that creates a culture of fear that ends up covering up mm -hmm. these acts of impunity. And where our, our argument is we need to bring some rigor, some transparency into the exposure of the denial of mm -hmm. aid because shame should be one of the uh, tools that's at the disposal and transparency should be a fundamental part of this. And we, we're not going into a blame game about the NGOs or the UN officials. Um, this is about defense of the UN Charter. It's not about defending something that's Western or something that's being imposed. It's a, a laws that are, and rules that have been signed up to that are not being obeyed. And we do think that at the moment, uh, essentially large, literally millions of people are suffering in silence because no one knows and no one's willing to speak up about the denial of aid. And it's less, um, how would I put it, it's less um, dramatic in some ways than the pummeling of civilian infrastructure by uh, combatants in conflict. But it shouldn't be suffering in silence. And, it, and our idea is that we've got to try and bring this out. David, can I come in on this? Yeah, please. As a former humanitarian coordinator in the UN, um, we bore a primary responsibility under the existing practice of access to continually negotiate with authorities on the ground who would either grant it or not grant it. Now, this is a very curious thing because those people who bore that primary responsibility are bureaucrats. They're not state actors. And yet, under international humanitarian law, if you as a country have ratified it, you are responsible for ensuring that all of the other countries uphold it. But who does the system entrust that responsibility to? One of the weakest actors, a bureaucrat. Rather than the, the member states themselves who have ratified those Geneva Conventions, taking responsibility for ensuring that they are upheld everywhere at all times. The real issue here is who is strongest placed in the system to make sure that there's accountability. And those are member states. Mm -hmm. They're not UN bureaucrats who are doing their very best or heroic NGO frontline workers trying to uphold it. It's the countries and the states that have responsibilities and capabilities. And yet they are the first to say, let the bureaucrats do it. Well, they say that the bureaucrats do it, but they also say um, they use sovereignty as a shield against external Yes. Um, investigation and criticism. That's right. And in a situation where in the 54 conflicts, in a significant number of them, the governments are combatants in conflict. That's right. And you, know, you see this in the distrust that can exist in places where there are government health workers, but people in an opposition-held area don't want to have anything to do with them. You can see that in Syria in the the fact that there's no cross-line, cross-conflict line aid going into the northwest of Syria. Correct. Depends on cross-border mm. aid. And the argument is, it's nothing to do with the outside world. Our argument, I think, is 
It is to do with the outside world because you've made an international commitment by signing the UN Charter to allow the, to facilitate the delivery of aid. Exactly, and I just want to follow up, please. Um, I know that a question that you have asked uh, in other er uh, spec spectrums is, is so, so fundamental on humanitarian issues. If you're in a position of authority or you're um, uh, with an international organization that is seeking to assist, the first question in an emergency situation is, who do I call? Would you like to expand on that from your own experience? Who do I call first when the emergency erupts on a humanitarian perspective? So if you were a humanitarian coordinator in a place like Central African Republic, and the responsible authorities on the ground, whether they were state or non-state actors, were not providing access. So what would you do? You called the capital of the country that had the most influence over Bangui. Rang him up, Paris, and said, can you please uphold your obligation under international humanitarian law to get the Central African Republic to allow humanitarian access? What's been very interesting is that in the last 25 years, how often, when you make those phone calls, no one picks up the phone. No one takes responsibility for assisting the international architecture that tries to keep people alive and protect civilians and extremists. When I first started my career in the UN 25 years ago, everyone picked up that phone. When I left the UN two years ago, almost no one picked up that phone when you called. And again, it raises the question about who bears primary responsibility for ensuring that civilians survive and live through these conflicts. And increasingly what's happened is that that responsibility and burden is being carried by NGOs and being carried by bureaucrats rather than by the state actors as it should be. I'd like to turn to Ukraine, and actually the segue is that Russia is an occupying military power in Ukraine and under the Fourth Geneva Convention has enormous responsibilities as an occupying force in Donbass, Crimea, etc., to care for the civilian population and to comply with, frankly, international human rights law while they are an occupying power in those regions. And I think we've seen from what we can see from reporting, et cetera, and re retaken territory that has been occupied by Russia, that there's been a, a singular failure by Russian authorities on that uh, spectrum. And I raise that point, David, because in the Atlas of Impunity, there is a, one of the five dimensions is abuse of human rights. And then, of course, if there's no accountability for that, what is the long-term impact of that? on that society, particularly one beset by what you have rightly called polycrises. Um, in Ukraine, we have the challenge not only of, um, of accountability for the aggression and the various atrocity crimes which are being committed during the conflict itself, but there's also accountability for what uh, Lise, I think, has rightly pointed out is what is the responsibility of an occupying force while you have occupied territory and you are in control of that occupied territory. 
Is there anything that you've experienced from, I, I assume you've been to Ukraine and, and, and whatnot, that you'd like to comment on regarding either the necessity or not of achieving some measure of accountability in Ukraine? Well, we, um, I have been to Ukraine. It's important to say we've not been able to establish operations east of the conflict line. Mm. We're, we're, we're working far to the east of the country, right up, and I'm very proud that within 36 hours of Kharkiv becoming um, Ukrainian-held, we were delivering humanitarian aid in Kharkiv. Mm. And the work that's being done by our teams is really excellent, reaching suffered through the, uh, the conflict and are still suffering from it because the, the front line is still very dangerous. Um, but we've not been able to establish operations in the Russian-held areas. So my ability to, to comment on the situation there is very limited. What I can do is obviously speak to the wider accountability questions. And uh, I would say two things about that. The first is that documentation is very, very important. And in this, the Ukrainians are doing an extraordinary job, and the ICC is on the ground also doing an extraordinary job. And I, I read somewhere 50,000 pieces of documentation and 50,000 incidents being uh, documented, because uh, that is very, very important. And the ICC is in there, and it's, it's, uh, that gives me some comfort. Second thing, and I uh, tread into this area gingerly as someone who resides in America at the um, pleasure of the U.S. government is that um, the ability of the U.S. to argue for accountability for others is obviously undermined when it doesn't have accountability for itself. And it was interesting at the uh, Munich Security Conference, Vice President Harris made a very powerful speech about the need for accountability both in respect of aggression and in respect of uh, war crimes on the, uh, the initial aggression and war crimes on the ground. But, I mean, the number of people who weren't from the Western grouping who said to me, yeah, but is America a part of the ICC? Of course, it's not ratified the... In fact, someone in your conversation, on your panel at Munich, from a Nobel laureate in the audience asked that exact question. Yeah. To, you know, so to I, your group. I, yeah. Exactly. So I think that, that there is a... I, 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 it, would be, it, would, it would be dishonest not to mention that that is... Um, there. And I think that if you buy the argument that this decade is going to be defined in various ways as a battle between accountability and impunity, and the defense of democracy is part of the drive to secure accountability, but if you buy that argument, then the narrative war is going to be fought in part on what aboutery. Mm -hmm not on the substance of the individual issues, but what about X? And essentially, the, uh, the allegation will be that Western powers are speaking with forked tongue, that they want accountability for others, but don't want accountability for themselves. Mm. And I have to tell you, that is a, an argument that, that has a lot of ground. And obviously, I applaud the determination of any government that wants to argue in favor of accountability. But it's essential to point out that it's undermined when the physician doesn't heal thyself. Exactly, and I am plagued by that question constantly when I appear uh, uh, before audiences. Um, Lauren, do I have time for a little more, or yes? Okay, 
We should really say that people are able to ask questions online and in the audience, is that right? Right, and I just want to make sure we start that process. I have one last question, uh, which is, um, there is a map, uh, let's see, is it in here? No, it's actually, yeah, actually on the front page, the map of your flyer. And you'll notice that all the way over on the left is Haiti. Um, and of course Venezuela, but uh, it has always struck me, and maybe Lise, you'd also like to answer this from a humanitarian uh, assistance uh, perspective. Is there any rationale to try to develop a plan or a strategy globally whereby individual developed nations who have the capacity for providing foreign assistance, development assistance, etc., actually are organized in such a way as to focus on one developed country will focus on one country to rebuild it. Let's say for the United States, why we don't do more for Haiti, I have never figured out. That the United States could take responsibility for Haiti, pump enough money and assistance in there to truly develop that society beyond where it is now. And then obviously for other countries on your map, other developed countries would be assigned their, their country of attention. Now, I don't want to suggest this in terms of some sort of neo-colonial concept, but rather uh, a neo-financial assistance concept. Would that make a difference in terms of how these societies are assisted to build themselves up again, or would it fact possibly be a, an, an, an erroneous experiment of, of development assistance? Well, I'd be interested in Lisa's view. I mean, I'd argue the opposite. I'd argue that so national protectorates have a bad uh, history. Mm. And what we suffer from in the international humanitarian system is too many different donors with their own priorities. I'd argue for more pooling, more combined resource, more multilateral effort, mm. rather than sort of bilateralism of a, of a stronger kind. Now, geography, history, uh, trade links, uh, people links, create all sorts of uh, informal responsibilities mm. that mean that some countries play a bigger role than others. But our, I can report to you that our sector is plagued by fragmented donor behavior rather than unified donor um, behavior. So I'm, I'm concerned to avoid that. I also want to say this, though, and this is something where I think USIP, if I may say so, has a potentially really important role to play. It's not just money. If money solved the problem of fragile and conflict states, I'd be relieved, because although it's hard to argue for money, at least you've got a solution. When I think about the Bermuda Triangle of conflict, climate, and misgovernance, it's not just that the three together create very, very difficult questions about how you build functioning states. It's that three of them individually are very difficult. I mean, climate is actually the easiest, at least in theory, because we know what is creating the climate crisis, and we know that um, uh, fewer greenhouse gas emissions would, would mitigate it, um, or at least mitigate its spread. But the, the tools of diplomacy to tackle intrastate civil wars are underdeveloped. And that's why civil wars go on for so long, and it's why the most likely outcome of a civil war is a renewed fighting. And let's be honest, issues of governance. People write PhDs about it, but it's hard to find an answer 
uh, to it. And so I'm very concerned that while we're getting better and better at delivering humanitarian aid that helps people to survive and at the micro level to recover from trauma and to, to, to eke out some dignity of existence, at a macro level, the big questions about conflict, climate, and uh, governance are not well answered. Mm -hmm. And the macro question of how you stop fragile states becoming failing states really needs the, the, the micro intelligence of organizations like ours and the macro perspective of organizations like yours, I think. You want to want to have a go at that? Question? And I mean, if any perspective, please, that you'd like on either my direct question or David's follow-up? Uh, knowing that we have colleagues who want to join in, I, I think a, a quick reaction, David, to your important point is to recognize that the institutions which have served the international community well in the last 75 years and that have served our regional organizations well and that have served many countries well are completely overstretched and in many cases collapsing and disintegrating and dis becoming dysfunctional because of the demands on those institutions to respond to a set of crises for which they were not created and do not have the capacity to address. Mm. I think in many ways what we're really talking about is a very smart way of addressing institutional fragmentation and breakdown and that until we are able to do that systematically and in ways which are creative, the kinds of problems we've been discussing will not have an answer. Well, shall we go to questions from the audience first? And then I know Lauren has some online questions that uh, likely have come in. Anyone uh, in the audience? I know we have some journalists, and you're more than welcome to dig in here. Hi, thank you very much for your time. It's an honor to be here. Um, a graduate student at American University uh, studying international peace. Uh, I just wanted to comment on the striking a new deal for forcibly displaced and just wanted to hear your, perhaps even if you wanted to list states or nations that you feel could um, take this place, uh, including the United States, in the world to deal with displacement. My, both my parents come from countries that they themselves were displaced. And thanks to the efforts of the United States and other developed countries, of course, I'm here today. Uh, but I think some of, the, some of that concern seems to be, um, it, it, it's increasing, obviously, in this unstable world. And there are many countries that are working, unfortunately, their populations against this concept. Could you speak on maybe this a little bit more and how other governments could respond and maybe what those governments should, should be? What's a list of governments that should really be working on this? Yeah, great. So there are 45 million people who are refugees or asylum seekers today. Uh, in the House of Commons yesterday in the UK, the Home Secretary said that there were 100 million people on the move who could come to Britain. And what she was using was the figure of internally displaced plus refugees and asylum seekers. And of course, conjuring up an, up an utterly absurd scare story to try to justify um, some measures that she was announcing yesterday. Because the, as I point out on Twitter, the people who've been driven from Aleppo to Idlib as internally displaced are not about to come to uh, the UK. They can't get out of Idlib. That's the whole point. Um, in respect of the New Deal for the forcibly displaced, of the 45 million, the vast majority are in poor countries or lower middle income countries, not rich countries. They're in Bangladesh, Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan. Um, Jordan's now a poor country, at least on the official statistics. Um, Uganda uh, is a good example. Pakistan with a lot of uh, Afghan refugees. And our idea of the New Deal for the forcibly displaced is that you have to think beyond 
humanitarian aid in terms of the support for the delivery of what is effectively a global public good of hosting of refugees. And that means recognizing in international financial institutions, regional financial institutions, IMF engagement, that these countries need support, otherwise they break under the strain of it. And I think the New Deal is about enabling those displaced and the host communities to recover, to get education for their kids, to get employment for the adults. I mean, I always say to people, the, the, the employment rate among Jordanians is between 25 and 35% among young Jordanians. Uh, and the unemployment rate, at least officially, among uh, Syrian adults is in the 80% range. And that's not good for Syrians, and it's not good for Jordanians. And so the New Deal has to think at the macroeconomic level, as well as at the microeconomic and micro-social level, about where people are going to live, not in camps, but in uh, urban areas, how they're going to be able to get access to employment. And here, I think Ukraine is a very interesting example, because, of course, the, the, the five, six million Ukrainian, effectively, women and kids who've gone into Europe, what have they been guaranteed? They've been guaranteed rights to work, rights to education, rights to welfare, rights to public services, rights to residence. So the toolkit is actually known. And when it's properly funded, as it is by people, for people who fled to the world's largest, richest single market, it's deliverable in a way that sustains, despite all the strains and stresses of it, um, some social contract. Mm -hmm. And Ukraine should be an inspiration in that sense, but at the moment it's the exception. Thanks for the good question. Yes, right here. We've, oh, I'm sorry. Um, why don't we go first uh, where the mic is and then we'll come to you, okay? Sorry. All right, thank you so much. Uh, my name is Karim Tambi. I'm a Ugandan human rights activist. Um, I'm glad you spoke about um, Uganda and the refugee crisis. And when we are to talk about accountability in the age of impunity, we cannot exclude um, what Museveni has done. So much as we have talked about Uganda hosting refugees, we haven't tackled the root cause of refugees flowing into Uganda. So most of them have been coming in from the Congo, which Uganda owes reparations for um, uh, plundering and taking um, uh, mineral resources for years. So the conflict in the Congo partly is to do with Uganda, and I don't think our international partners are willing to hold Museveni accountable. I don't know whether um, there is a way we could hold Museveni and his government accountable together with our neighbors in, in Rwanda. Um, they have been partly um, uh, to blame for what's happening in the Congo. So thanks for the good question. I mean, I'd highlight um, South Sudanese refugees as well as Congolese. I mean, obviously, you know the situation in Uganda far better than, than I do, but th th there's a, a very large, there's about, over a million, maybe even one and a half million mm -hmm. South Sudanese oh. refugees in uh, Uganda. And you make a very interesting point that while Uganda rightfully gets credit and applause, including from me, for the way in which it treats refugees, there's a much wider context, both about human rights in the country, but also uh, a wider regional context. And when I said earlier about how the tools to tackle what is domestic conflict, civil conflict, th there's a very important uh, rider to that, which is that both 
in their origins, civil wars obviously involve, uh, have engagement of other countries, but also in their ongoing nature, the evidence of what's called internationalized civil conflict. In other words, civil conflict that has external actors playing a role, that's also significantly on the rise. In, in the longer version of the watch list, I think we point out 18, I've got in my head, 18 of the 54 civil conflicts um, are, involve international actors, not just, um, yeah, I don't know, a number of countries with two or more conflicts. I, I think we've got in here um, a, uh, I thought we had a statistic about the internationalized nature of uh, uh, civil conflict. I may have missed, my memory is that 18 of the uh, civil conflicts that go on around the world have external actors also um, involved in them. And that's, th th that's why the peacemaking is so much, in some ways, more complicated for civil wars than it is for wars between states. Sorry, you want to get a question. I'll try and find this statistic. Hi, thanks very much for your comments so far. Uh, my name's Gayla and I work on Middle East issues at the British Embassy here in Washington. Um, Syria is very much on my mind at the moment, uh, not just because we've got the 12th year anniversary of the conflict coming up next week, but also with um, the devastating scenes from the earthquake that we've seen in the past uh, couple of months. As um, I know you know, we every, unfortunately now every six months we have this battle in New York at the council um, around aid access and aid crossings. And I think Northwest Syria is kind of the best and worst example of the politicization of aid um, and the kind of lack of impunity that we have uh, with the Assad regime. Um, I think, you know, obviously post-earthquake, uh, Martin Griffiths did some great work with the regime in trying to get those two extra crossings uh, reopened for a, a temporary amount of time. But we see the regime benefiting massively from all this kind of earthquake diplomacy that's going on with, you know, loads of um, states uh, now re-engaging in a way that they felt uncomfortable doing so before kind of using the earthquake as a hook. I guess my question is, what, what, can, what could and should we be doing differently in Syria? Because so far, it just doesn't seem to be working. Thank you. Well, it's a great question, which I've learned in America. People often say that's a great question, and that often means that people don't know the answer to the question. Uh, the, that is a great question. Um, he, here's my reflection on it. It's not an answer, because uh, I haven't got a good enough answer. A forgotten conflict is not a resolved conflict. And Syria was a resolved conflict before, uh, 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 was a forgotten conflict before the 6th of February. Before the earthquake, it had gone off the uh, agenda. Uh, secondly, the issue that you point to, the closing of official border crossing points, one from Turkey, two from Iraq, into Syria, is a classic example of the use of sovereignty to deny legal rights to six and a half million Syrians who live in non-government controlled areas. Um, three and a half, probably four and a half million in the uh, northwest, maybe two and a half million in the, north, in the northeast. Um, thirdly, my data, and this is now a week old, we've got about over 400 people in the northwest, is that although there have been increased numbers of, there's been an increase in the official border crossings, we haven't got more trucks going through than before the earthquake. It was, uh, I've got 54 in my head, but, but I, don't know, I, I don't know whether that's right, but I, I, I haven't got the, uh, that's a week old, but there hasn't been a flood of aid into um, northwest Syria. And so when we say survival, 
is success in northwest Syria in the next weeks and months. That's because the dangers of cholera, the dangers of uh, other disease is, is absolutely ever-present, never mind the lack of treatment for people who've been injured in the uh, earthquake itself. We lost two of our own staff members uh, on that. And then I just want to make one more point, which is um, maybe so generalized it will seem glib, but I, I hope not. Uh, the multilateral system has been elbowed aside in discussing the politics of the future of Syria. The UN system has been elbowed aside, even though one of your former colleagues, Gerd Pedersen, does a heroic job in trying to keep the international um, multilateral effort going. Russia, uh, Syria, Iran, Turkey, the Astana process is center stage, not a global multilateral effort. And that, from leading a humanitarian organization, I feel it's my responsibility to talk about that, not because it shortchanges the people on the ground who we're trying to help. And they can't be helped by the world because the world has been pushed to one side in some ways. And so I, I, those are reflections, not an answer. And I, I'm, I'm very pleased that it's, that, it's, that it's something you're working on. If I can come in on the obvious point, in 2005 at the Summit of World Leaders, the responsibility to protect was adopted as a guiding principle to be followed by the member states of the United Nations. As we all know, the responsibility to protect is based on the premise that if a government is unable or unwilling to protect the people it administers. It is the responsibility of the international community to do that. You don't have to stretch that very far to make the same argument that if a government is unwilling or unable to provide humanitarian assistance, which is guaranteed to people under the Geneva Accords, the international community, has a responsibility to do that by all means necessary. That's the corollary. Now, it's never been pushed that far. There isn't a humanitarian that works in a war that doesn't think it every day and doesn't wonder why the international community has not moved in that direction. It is, of course, the decision of the member states whether or not they would move in that direction, but I think most of the people who day in and day out try and keep people alive under the most impossible, horrendous conditions imaginable, would hope that that is at least a discussion. Uh, Lauren, do we have online? How do you operationalize accountability for versus impunity, and how might this apply to Afghanistan or Myanmar? What was the beginning of the question? How do you operationalize the framework of accountability versus impunity? Uh, my answer to that would be it depends what impunity you're trying to address. If it's an act of, um, in, the, in the middle of a conflict, it requires documentation, it requires investigation, it requires, if necessary, it requires prosecution. And one of the things that the Atlas of Impunity points to is the use of the universal jurisdiction um, uh, legal template, which David can speak about, uh, to prosecute Syrian generals in German courts for... Um, abuses. Mm -hmm. uh, we also raise questions about economic exploitation in the Atlas of Impunity, um, environmental exploitation. Those are different issues that would require different accountability mechanisms. And I think that's one of the strengths of the Atlas of Impunity, uh, which the Eurasia Group and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs produced under uh, David's uh, uh, leadership. Um, 
is that they show the multifaceted character of how to identify accountability, not just in courtrooms, but in many other dimensions that lead you to a more fulsome understanding of impunity society by society. Um, it's 10.59. Do we have time, Lauren, for one more from online? Or Okay, let's try. Is the U.S. re-engagement with Africa prioritizing geopolitical factors with China and indirectly endorsing and enabling authoritarian regimes to flourish in Africa? Um, I mean, I'm not sure if I've got the, the, the full measure of the question, but I think that the engagement I would be urging on Americans or other countries in Africa or elsewhere is people to people as well as government to government. Um, it's about understanding regional dimensions to problems as well as local dimensions to challenges. And it's about um, recognizing that in the, in the mouths of many parts of the world, the demand of the richer parts of the world is for equity, it's for voice, and it's for respect. And those are not, um, not things that you just confer on governments. You confer on civil society, on the private sector, uh, as well as on government. And I think the US could do itself an enormous favor by catalyzing the commitments around climate adaptation, for example. I mean, the, the climate fund, the $100 billion pledged climate fund that has never been set up since 2009 has become an absolute um, cudgel with which the hypocrisy of the Western world is attacked relentlessly. And we're arguing that while in 2009 you could imagine that that fund, which was intended for um, developing countries to use for mitigation of climate change and for low carbon ways of development, that ship has sailed. We need at least 50% of that money to be spent on adaptation, not just on mitigation, because climate change is something that our clients in East Africa, in the Sahel, in Afghanistan, they're living with it today. In the Middle East, they're not just, it's not just tomorrow's problem. And we, can't, we, have, to, we have to both walk and chew gum, we have to do the mitigation and the adaptation at the same time. I think this brings us to a close, and I want to thank the audience, uh, both here and online, for joining us. The, the big takeaway that I have is that both the document Atlas of Impunity as well as the emergency watch list for 2023 of the International Rescue Committee, both provide practical, conceptual frameworks for framing policy and refocusing our attention on what might work better than the status quo or might uh, suggest that we prioritize our attention more than we are presently through the advice in these two documents. So I do strongly encourage you to, um, to get both of them, and I hope governments do as well. Thank you, David, for thank being you. here. It's been an honor. And please, thank you as well. And uh, with that, I will bring to a close this session. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.